This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. I think Kim has gained more than the United States because Singapore summit produced a statement basically saying, first, we're going to try to have a better relationship. Secondly, there should be some sort of normalization, steps towards normalization. And then North Korea said that it would work towards denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But there was not an agreement even on what that means. North Korea, without having really having done anything, they look more legitimate. Kim Jong-un looks more legitimate. The North Koreans made cosmetic steps towards his denuclearization. Nothing, any, you know, anything concrete. Meanwhile, we gave North Koreans, uh, we stopped the joint exercises. So we have not real, made any kind of real progress towards denuclearization. Okay, Sue, so the Vietnam summit, what do you think both sides are thinking going into the summit? I think both sides are more realistic now. I do think there's going to be some sort of an interim deal. I don't think it's going to be that satisfying. I have a mixed feeling about this because to be realistic, this is the only outcome that's possible because North Korea is not just going to give up everything when they're not seeing relaxation of sanctions. What I am concerned about with President Trump is I hope that we don't, he doesn't make a rash decision. I hope that President Trump actually listens to his advisors. I hope that we don't just too easily take the sanctions off because I do think we need to continue the pressure. Sumi Terry is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. She is one of our country's leading experts on North Korea. During her career, Sue served as a senior analyst at CIA, as the director for Korea and Japan at the National Security Council, and as the deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia on the National Intelligence Council. I just had a chance to sit down with Sue to discuss the upcoming U.S.-North Korean summit in Vietnam. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity to high-energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Sue, welcome. You were on the show last June, just before the first 
Trump Kim Summit in Singapore. It is great to have you back. Thank you for having me on. We're just days away now from the second Trump Kim Summit in Vietnam, and that's what I want to focus on today. But before we actually get to that, I want to start with what I think are three important background questions. And the first, and I know you're not a technical expert, but I know you read everything that the technical experts write. Can you tell us where you think North Korea is today in its ability to detonate a nuclear device over the continental United States? Well, as you know, we North Korea has tested three intercontinental ballistic missiles in 2017. Um, they have tested six nuclear weapons, including hydrogen bomb tests in 2017. So we know they have nuclear weapons, um, 2260 nuclear weapons. We also know that they have intercontinental ballistic missile that can reach all of the mainland United States. North Korea, I think, was about one technical step away from perfecting their nuclear arsenal and having ability to hit New York or Washington, D.C. with a nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missile. And that technical step was showcasing, successfully showing that they have re-entry capability. So I would say they're about 90, 95% of what they were there at the end of 2017. I think even the intelligence community was saying they were about one technical step away from perfecting their capability. And that, and that technical step is mating the nuclear device to the missile and having it survive re-entry from the atmosphere. That's correct. So that's that's what we call re, uh, successful re-entry capability, being able to marry that um, so you can have put a nuclear warhead on a missile that could reach the target city. So they have ICBMs, they have nuclear weapons. They were just that one technical step away. And that's why uh, we thought by the end of 2017 that North Korea could have just pursued trying to showcase that capability, perhaps even testing a nuclear weapon over the Pacific Ocean. Atmospheric nuclear tests was what everybody was worried about at the end of 2017. You know, when, when he was um, the director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, publicly would say they're two months away. They're two months away from this from this right. step, right? And he would say that no matter where he was yeah. and when he was, right? So that actually said to me that we weren't, we as an intelligence community weren't exactly sure of whether they had that capability or not. And it was possible that they could test it and it would be successful and they'd be there. And it was also possible they could test it and it wouldn't work quite right and we right. might assess that they need a little bit more time. So it's a very interesting and obviously a very important question. So the second background question is, why do you think Kim Jong-un decided that early 2017 was the time to come to the negotiating table? You know, why now? Why not five years ago? Why not five years from now? Why now? I think there were a number of factors. First, there was maximum pressure uh, from the United States, and maximum pressure was working. Uh, we Even China was... These are the act- sanctions. Yes, yeah, maximum pressure and sanctions. Even China. Uh, China, you know, we were always sort of unhappy with China because China was not implementing sanctions in the previous years. But by the fall of 2017, even China was actually implementing sanctions. So there was actual pressure on the Kim regime. Um, also, uh, that maximum pressure of sanctions was accompanied by President Trump's violent fury rhetoric. Um, there was this sense that maybe President Trump was very serious 
about this bloody nose uh, potential uh, preemptive strike uh, on North Korea. So I think that maximum pressure was real, really there. China and South Korea was also very concerned about this potential uh, military strike on North Korea. But also, if you remember, 2017 was a year where Kim Jong-un was doing all these missile tests. Kim Jong-un himself, since coming to power, he did four out of six nuclear tests. He conducted 90 missile tests. That's double the number that his father and grandfather have tested combined. So North Korea also got to a certain level in, in their nuclear missile capability, where I think Kim Jong-un thought uh, at, at the end of 2017 that he could negotiate with President Trump from position of strength. So this is combination of vulnerability because Kim was facing real pressure and strength because North Korea's nuclear missile program did get advanced to the point where he thought he could sit down with So interesting Trump. from a, both coming to the table from a position of strength and a bit from a position of weakness. Yes, I think so. So it's not one factor but combination of yeah. factors. So so why did China why did China change its approach? Why did they toughen up? With regard to the North? I do think that both China and South Korea were really spooked by this uh, fire and fury rhetoric coming out of Washington. And I think that is genuine. And it, it, so that's one thing. Secondly, China was not happy with Kim Jong-un. If you remember, Xi Jinping has not even met with Kim until the beginning of 2018 when we decided to engage with Kim in the summitry and diplomacy. Xi Jinping has not met with Kim Jong-un, even though he met with South Korean presidents, Park Geun-hye, Myung-bak, and so on. So Xi Jinping was unhappy with Kim for a number of reasons, assassinating uh, Kim assassinating his uncle, a number two guy, Chang Song-tae, who was a main interlocutor with, uh, with the Chinese, assassinating his brother, half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, who was under the protection of China. And all these missile and nuclear tests, it, it, so Xi Jinping was not happy with Kim, and then the combination effect of President Trump with the fire and fury and genuine concern that Kim's provocations, these missile and nuclear provocations, could lead to a conflict on the Korean Peninsula. I think that's why China was actually pressuring Kim and implementing sanctions in the fall of 2017. Sue, so the third background question I wanted to get to before we, we actually look forward to the Vietnam summit is, to talk a little bit about what's happened since the Singapore summit. Who's gained what? What has changed? What's not changed? Kind of a scorecard of where are we? I think Kim has gained more than the United States. Singapore summit produced this statement. Um, I think most all Korea watchers would agree that it was just kind of a vague aspirational statement and then since then, we, we are at an impasse because Singapore summit produced a statement basically saying, first, we're going to try to have a better relationship uh, with each other, meaning United States and North Korea. Secondly, there should be some sort of normalization, steps towards normalization. And then North Korea said that it would work towards denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But there was not an agreement even on what that means. North Korea means by denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, South Korea territory too, right? That means also end of U.S.-South Korea alliance, the troop presence, our U.S. nuclear extended umbrella that we have over South Korea. So North Korea meant denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula literally when the U.S. meant 
their North Korea's nuclear program. So we didn't even have an agreed-upon definition of denuclearization. We also didn't have an agreed-upon, just agreed uh, agreement on sequencing of what's going to come. Before, you know, there's no agreed agreement on sequencing. So we're at an impasse. But meanwhile, Kim Jong-un has met with President Moon Jae-in three times. He has met with Xi Jinping four times. And so there's momentum towards normalizing his rule. Uh, he's, he looks like a real leader of a normal country. So he looks, I like, think a re- he he looks be, like a reasonable guy. He looks like a reasonable guy. The implementation of sanctions are now loosening on the ground level because China has less incentive to really implement sanctions. So North Korea, without having really having done anything, uh, it's a, they, are, they look more legitimate. Kim Jong-un looks more legitimate. He was able to loosen sanctions and the pressure that he was feeling from the international community. Meanwhile, I'm not sure what we, got, we have gotten. It's true that they have decommissioned a missile t- a site and so on, but that's sort of an obsolete missile site. So at least from my perspective, I feel like the North Koreans made cosmetic steps towards his denuclearization, nothing, any, you know, anything concrete. Meanwhile, we, we gave North Koreans, uh, we stopped the joint exercises. And so we have not real made any kind of real progress towards denuclearization. So no progress on denuclearization, a relaxation of the implementation of sanctions, largely by China, but by, by others as well, or just, just by China, China, Russia... But it, it just by the international community, there are just less incentive to really implement sanctions, but mostly from China, because China is the key uh, in terms of uh, trying to pressure North Korea on and, the sanctions front. And an end or, or a temporary end to U.S. exercises. And Kim looks great on the world stage. And we've gotten decommissioning of some old facilities and a continuation of the the not testing nuclear weapons and missiles. That's kind of the scorecard, right, right. right? What do you make of the media reports that the intelligence community continues to see work on the ground at missile and nuclear sites? Well, so both the leaks from the intelligence community show that North Korea is working on nuclear missile program and even commercial satellite satellites uh, imagery from our own work is from CSIS show that all the activities continue. But some Korea watchers point out that, hey, North Korea has never agreed to stop this because Singapore agreement was not an actual detailed agreement. So I can see that. Why would North Korea actually stop? There was no agreement on that. And that is the exact criticism of the Singapore summit. It has not produced an agreement that leads to North Korea actually stopping their work on the nuclear missile program. In fact, if you're Kim Jong-un, you have an incentive to continue with your program to in this, during this period, right, where nothing's happening before negotiations so that you strengthen your hand. Absolutely. You'd increase your leverage. Right. You have, the more you have, the more you, you can you know, get Yeah, for absolutely. Okay, Sue, so, so the Vietnam summit. We're now just days away from it. What do you think both sides are thinking going into the summit? What's the U.S. approach to the summit, do you think? And what's, what's Kim's approach to the summit, do you think? I think both sides are more realistic now, and hopefully they have learned uh, mistakes from the Singapore summit. So I do think there's going to be some sort of an interim deal. I don't think it's going to be that satisfying uh, in terms of achieving real concrete steps towards denuclearization, but I think there's going to be an interim deal because both sides want some sort of a deal. And that interim deal could look like, you know, where North Korea continues to 
you know, promised I mean, the, the continuing halt of testing of their nuclear missiles. They can say well, they're going to freeze their nuclear missile program, so they will at least not continue on this front. And then they can say, you know, they, can, they might even put Yongbyon nuclear uh, facility on the table for negotiation. But what North Korea is saying is that they need corresponding measures from the United States for them to dismantle Yongbyon. So that is a real question. What would the United States do? And I think U.S. is prepared to give North Korea a peace declaration, formally announcing the end of the Korean War. I think U.S. is also prepared to open liaison offices, do people-to-people exchanges. But the key question is the sanctions, because North Koreans are looking for relaxation of sanctions. And there's some flexibility there where the United States could still, for example, allow South Korea to go to the United Nations and ask for exemption to reopen the north-south Kaesong Industrial Complex, to reopen the Kumgang Mountain Tourism Site, uh, where the United States can say, you know, we're still maintaining sanctions, but that's South Korea, allowing South Korea to do it. So there's, there's some room for an interim deal. That's, I think that's possible. And, and, and how, would you, how would you feel about that outcome? So I very candidly, I have a mixed feeling about this because to be realistic, this is the only outcome that's possible because North Korea is not just going to give up everything when they're not seeing relaxation of sanctions. So if it's an interim deal that's moving towards a real deal down the road, uh, perhaps it's a good thing. And, and we are still, this is a better scenario than where we were at the end of 2017, where we're talking about potential conflict with North Korea. But I have deep concerns. I have deep concerns that this, we're somehow, we're moving towards legitimizing North Korea's nuclear weapons power, that we are accepting North Korea's nuclear weapons power. And we're just, now it's an arms control negotiation. So I, I have concern about that because North Korea's goal, I don't believe, has changed which is to gain international acceptance of North Korea as a responsible nuclear weapons power. And I'm, I'm concerned that we're headed in that direction. So on, on one hand, I understand and I, why an interim deal might be necessary. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm very concerned that we're just headed in the direction where North Korea, we, we just accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. So what do you make of the debate, I guess is the right word, with quotes around it, between the IC, which says Kim will never give up his nuclear weapons, and the president who says, no, I know him, and he will, right? So what do you think of that? And more importantly, what do you think his intentions are? Do you think he's, he's in this negotiation with the knowledge that he wants to hang on to some of his program, and he's working towards that? Or is he open-minded about what the ultimate outcome looks like and for the right price, he'd be willing to give everything up? Where are you on that question? Well, I'm with the intelligence community uh, on this one. Uh, Just having watched North Korea, followed North Korean issue for many number of years now, I don't see why Kim would give it up. Um, And there's no reason to even give it up because let's say North Korea actually give up nuclear weapons. How do we even know that? How do we even verify uh, that? So from Kim's perspective, it just doesn't make sense. Now, it makes sense to pretend or act like you might and give up aspects of nuclear program, but it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And I don't think that we need to even necessarily criticize for North Korea. If you just look at 
how many nuclear weapons power? Like how many countries will actually give up nuclear weapons? I mean, you, you can look at South Africa, Ukraine, but it, that usually requires regime change. I think Kim Jong-un ultimately still needs nuclear weapons as a deterrence. Um, and it doesn't have an incentive to give it up. So if I'm Kim, I would just kind of go along on this uh, negotiation and try to draw, so buy time, and maybe freeze aspects of the program and even give up an aspect, aspects of the program, but not entirely give up their nuclear program. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sumi Terry. Do you hear that? That's the calm before the storm. And when the storm makes landfall, we'll be ready for it. Thanks in part to Raytheon Weather Satellites, part of a suite of space solutions delivering critical data when it's needed most. From next-gen imaging to breakthrough missile warning systems, Raytheon is going farther, seeing clearer, and putting ideas in orbit to make the world a safer place. When you look down the road, where is all this going? Where do you think we're going to end up? And most importantly, what do you think the implications of that will be for our relationship with North Korea, our relationship with South Korea, our relationship with Japan, and what it means for other countries in the world that might be thinking about going the nuclear route? So I think where we are headed is eventually uh, we're going to get to a place where we, as an international community, accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. Now, whether the U.S. say that as a matter of policy, I, I think it's going to take a while for the U.S. to acknowledge it. Uh, we will say, no, we don't accept nuclear, North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. But in reality, we are, as if, we are doing right now. But if you negotiate with them yeah. and you cut deals with them right. and you allow them to keep it, you yeah. you have you, made you, that, exactly. even, even if you haven't said it. Exactly. So... Beyond this freeze, I think right now we might have a freeze deal, but we are headed towards we might have a deal on intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, even Secretary Pompeo has hinted at that. Um, he had various interviews. What do you mean a deal on intercontinental on, ballistic yeah, missile, yeah. where we we North Koreans agreed to give up the nuclear weapons pro, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile program or ship out a few, uh, some of them, not all, but. Uh, where we are okay for them to just get rid of the intercontinental police missile in exchange for North Korea keeping nuclear warheads and short-range, medium-range missiles that could still target Japan and South Korea. because So we would move to protect ourselves, right. but not our allies in the region. I think it's a real possibility because even Secretary Pompeo, I think earlier this month in his interview with Sean Hannity in Fox News, he's, he focused a lot on the goal, goal being uh, protecting United States mainland. He, on, in that particular interview, he didn't even talk about denuclearization. He didn't mention the word denuclearization once. And he talked a lot about protecting mainland United States. And what that means is intercontinental ballistic missile that could reach United States. But what about 600 missiles that could reach Japan and South Korea? Um, so if you allow this scenario to occur, eventually you could see in the future where the international community is accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. Just like Pakistan, we said 
you know, this was an impossible thing for Pakistan, but now Pakistan is a nuclear weapons power. So once we accept that, then there is a profound uh, implications of that. Uh, South Korea is not always going, going to be under progressive governments such as President Moon. Uh, it could be under a conservative rule. It could be under somebody who thinks this is not an acceptable scenario, and it, they could entertain a possibility of South Korea going nuclear. Then what about Japan? So it's not just inter-Korea, you know, the two, the two Koreas pursuing nuclear weapons. It could be then Japan. So then China and Japan are also, uh, there's a rivalry of, of that. So regional proliferation, I think, is a very serious implication. Never mind, like, the message that we send to the rogue actors out there, that all you have to just just stay on this path and pursue it, and and then you will just eventually get there where the international community accepts you know, your status as a nuclear weapons power. Um, so you're talking about a major strategic change in East Asia, sounds to me. Yes. Uh, it would completely change the landscape. And if you combine the regional proliferation with U.S. Uh, presence, what about is our troops going to stay in South Korea forever? Uh, once we have this peace declaration and potentially a peace treaty with North Korea, really formally, legally ending the Korean War, the justification, the rationale for U.S. troops staying in South Korea will, will be questioned, uh, I think, by South Koreans, by, by, by even potentially Americans. Uh, what, and then what happens when we pull out the troops? And then there's regional proliferation. This, so I think it, it does have a profound um, implication for, for East Asia. And um, that is my top concern. So if this happens, sounds to me like you're saying, and I would agree with you, that this would be a major strategic setback for the United States in the region. Who would be responsible for that at the end of the day? Is it is it just the Trump administration or does this go all the way back and this is a strategic failure of the United States over multiple administrations. How would you think about that? I would say that I do think it's a multiple it's a failure by everybody. This North Korean problem didn't just come about, you know, with the Trump administration. Obviously, President Clinton tried to deal with it, then we had the Bush two terms and Obama two terms. So, I think this is just U.S. failure uh, in terms of our policy, but um, it's so it's hard to say who did what wrong exactly. But because we did try everything in a genuine way, uh, we tried bilateral negotiation with the with the North Koreans during the Clinton years. We tried multilateral six party talks. We had multiple agreements uh, with North Korea that didn't work out. Uh, we had President Obama with strategic patience. So, you know, this is not one administration's problem. This is not a Republican problem or Democrat problem. Uh, but, you know, we are where we are. And but what I am concerned about with President Trump is I hope that we don't he doesn't make a rash decision with alliance equities. Like I hope he doesn't, you know, sign a peace treaty, for example, with North Korea without ha- having seen something much more concrete coming out of North Korea, because, it, again, it has profound implications so what would you advise, right, given, given the risks that you see in terms of where this is heading, what would you advise the president to do? What approach would you advise him to take um, in Vietnam? Well, the, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I wish that President Trump didn't meet with Kim Jong-un 
in Singapore. So it's just too late to walk that back. I'm not against top-level engagement because we tried everything else. But I felt that President Trump met with Kim Jong-un too early. That maximum pressure, I, I didn't like the fire and fury, but maximum pressure and sanctions were working. I was just talking about how China was actually implementing sanctions. We should have let that go on for just at least some period of time because it was just working. In Iran, it took three years before three years of sanctions, uh, real sanctions being implemented before Iran came back to uh, came to the negotiating table. But here we are, and um, we're having yet another second summit. and And I hope that we don't just too easily take the sanctions off because I do think we need to continue the pressure on the Kim regime. Obviously, this is what Kim wants very desperately is sanctions relief, sanctions relaxation. So, you know, I, I'm not happy with just, a, you know, North Korea agreeing to, let's say, dismantle sort of aging uh, site. Uh, we need to get somehow North Koreans to give us a couple things, concrete things like declaration of their inventory. That would be a good start. Or get them to agree on a roadmap and a timeline for actual steps. So I, I'm not naive to think that North Korea will give up all of it. But if they can at least, we can maintain them fiction uh, and, and they keep some nuclear and missile program, but at least they are saying that they're going to give it up. So they, they, they don't really necessarily get to use it or test, right? So I just hope that he listens. I, and I think Secretary Pompeo and Began and all the administration officials are and Steve Began, the, the North Korea the State envoy. Department yes. envoy, yes. I think they uh, they know all this, and so I I hope that President Trump actually listens to his advisors, and not you know agree uh, with him, or put things on the table like alliance equities or peace treaty or U.S. troops, without uh, without North Korea really taking these concrete steps and concrete steps by what I think are concrete steps are those things like declaration and agreed timeline and so on, not just, you know, saying we're going to, you know, disable an aging site. So, so, so let me try this approach out on you and get your reaction to it. So the president says to Kim in Vietnam, let me tell you again what North Korea could look like if you denuclearize. You can look like China. You can look like Vietnam. You can have great economic success. But if we don't start moving in that direction, if we don't start negotiations, and here's what that means, declaration, regular meetings, a roadmap to get to denuclearization, a timetable. If we don't get that, I'm not going to meet with you anymore. What about that kind of approach as opposed to the one you fear. Well, that's that would be a very sound advice. I think I think that that would be great. I mean, this is my point about prematurely meeting with Kim or just allowing Kim to just sit down with President Trump. I mean, this is a big deal for North Korean leader to get to meet with U.S. President. North Koreans always wanted that. President Trump was the first and the only person, only U.S. President that allowed that. You know, I think that might we should try that, but I doubt that President Trump will do that. Um, I think President Trump is the one who want. I mean, this is he wanted to meet with Kim. He wanted to meet with Kim now a second time. And clearly, when he met with when President Trump met with Kim in Singapore, they were not ready because they got nothing out of North Korea. 
I mean, I absolutely think that would be a wonderful idea uh, if President Trump actually sat down with Kim and said those words. So, so um, one more question. You've been terrific with your time with us. Do you think that Kim Jong-un's regime can survive an opening to the world? Right? If we have a peace deal, a peace treaty, there's sanctions relief, there's more, more economic interaction particularly with South Korea and China. Do you think the regime can survive that? Is that something that Kim worries about, has to think about? I think Kim worries about that a lot. That's why I genuinely question when North, where, you know, can North Korea truly pursue economic reform the way you just described, not just tinkering with it. Because what about the human rights front? Uh, because with economic reform and opening uh, you have to open up the country f- to information. Uh, we forget that North Korean citizens don't have access to Internet. They don't have passports. They cannot leave their country. They have to get a permit to go from a city to city. Uh, there's uh, pr- political prison camps that has 100,000, 220,000 people in them. Is it going to just completely change the entire country, the system? And North Korea is different still from China and Vietnam. This is a hereditary dynasty. It's a Confucian communist hereditary dynasty. There's no country like North Korea in the world. Will Kim risk dynastic succession, his own regime of power? I'm not sure if he's this kind of person. I really question, is he this kind of transformative leader? I I don't see any indication of that. So that is why, for me, I question whether North Korea can genuinely uh, reform and open up and transform itself as a normal country. Sue, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. That was Sue Me Terry. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.